My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay. Episode 9, Cache Valley. There's no place I'd rather be at. Though Salt Lake City is where I grew up, my uber-prolific Mormon Merrill clan adopted, or as I recently discovered it would be more accurate to say, co-opted, Cache Valley as our family homeland. While writing this, it occurred to me, I wonder who lived in Cache Valley before us, and what happened to them. So I did a little research. I discovered this largely untold, but absolutely gobsmackingly horrifying tidbit of Mormon history. The placid little Norman Rockwell community of Preston, Idaho, where I spent some of the happiest days of my childhood, was the site of the Bear River Massacre, the worst Native American massacre in American history. There were twice as many Native Americans brutally murdered at the Bear River Massacre than at Wounded Knee. The northern band of the Shoshone Nation, Sacagawea's tribe, had lived in what they called Willow Valley, present-day Cache Valley, for over 3,000 years. Two years after my family and a bunch of other Mormon pioneers arrived, the U.S. Army was called in from Fort Douglas in Salt Lake City, and they quite literally massacred the northern band of the Shoshone Nation. The justification for this largely unknown but shameful genocide was twofold. The Shoshone tribes were trying, understandably, to defend and reclaim their homeland, where they had lived and hunted for thousands of years. In so doing, they had raided a group of pioneers in southern Idaho traveling along the Oregon Trail. Also, they had fought with and killed two of my great-great-grandfather's, Apostle Marin Woodmerrill's, sons. 400 children, women, and men were massacred while they slept. Only 150 survived. In order to save bullets, the commander ordered his troops to just grab the children and infants by the ankle and bash their brains out. And get this, the reason this part of the valley was reserved for raising cattle and sheep is because every time they tried to till the land, they encountered so many human remains it made farming impossible. This all happened about five miles from my grandparents' retirement home. To me, the most shocking part about this revelation is not only have I gone my entire life not knowing about the Bear River Massacre, but I don't think I know a single person who does know anything about it. Yet another testament to the Mormon's supernatural dissociative abilities. This newly acquired bit of knowledge sheds an entirely new light on my childhood and the following story. Our family patriarch, Apostle Mariner Woodmerrill, answered the call of the prophet, who also happened to be his business partner, to settle Cache Valley in 1860. Mariner Woodmerrill was named first president of the Logan Temple in 1884 and was appointed as one of the prophet's twelve apostles in 1889. Apostle Merrill was also known for being the early mystic of the Mormon faith, the seer and revelator of early Mormons. He purported visions and conversations with God, and on one occasion he even had a chat with the devil. I don't mean to make light of his mystical experiences. I was raised to believe we are a family blessed with active and innate spiritual connectivity. And truth be told, I've experienced many of the same things myself especially, but not exclusively, when I took hallucinogenic mushrooms. 
Everything I saw or hallucinated was surrounded by starbursts of light. I had a very reaffirming chat with God, and she is awesome, by the way. I also had a life-changing altercation with the devil who took on the form of an incandescent turkey leg. To this day, I have never touched another turkey leg, and I never will. In the early days of Zion, you could measure a man's success by the number of wives and children he had. Apostle Merrill had eight wives, and depending on which source you cite, between 43 and 46 children. A century and a half later, we are the second largest family in the Mormon Church after Brigham Young's. As I have said in the past, if you ever have the urge to meet one of my cousins, just go to Cache Valley or the Utah State Senate Chambers and throw a rock. You'll probably hit one. During the polygamy raids in the late 1880s, when U.S. federal agents were arresting polygamists in the Utah Territory, Apostle Merrill illegally married his eighth wife and unlawfully performed his son, my great-grandfather Marinwood Merrill Jr.'s marriage, to his second wife. This was all uncovered in a congressional investigation in Washington, D.C., and the federal government issued a warrant for his arrest. Unordained Gentiles are not allowed to enter the sanctified Mormon temples. So, Apostle Merrill stayed for weeks on end in his bedroom at the Logan Temple to avoid arrest, while his eight wives took turns bringing him his meals. He eventually was apprehended and charged with unlawful cohabitation, but was released two days later. He was also summoned twice to appear before the United States Congress to speak at the Smoot hearings regarding polygamy and Mormonism, but declined citing his poor health. Sometimes Grandpa discussed what it was like having a mother and a sister mother. His mother, my great-grandma Merrill, was dubbed the Little General, all four foot ten inches of her, and she had twelve sons. She and her sister wife had separate farms. They were widowed early and had to fend for themselves with occasional help from their father-in-law, the Apostle, though, as I'm sure you can imagine, he was spread pretty thin. With a lot of grit, spit, and the fear of God, the little general saw to it every single one of her surviving sons worked his way through medical or law school. My grandpa became the patriarch of the Mormon Merrill clan after the early death of his father, as well as the death and incapacitation of his two older brothers. Grandpa graduated medical school at UCLA, then went on to become a dentist. At that time, dentistry was still considered a specialty of medicine and required two years of training after receiving a medical degree. After a couple generations, the gene pool in Cache Valley had become somewhat limited. A couple of my grandfather's brothers married my grandmother's sisters from the Johnson farm on the other side of the tiny little community of Richmond, Utah. In short, the only thing that saved me from hemophilia and even more learning disabilities was the railroad arrived before another generation had time to breed. Apostle Merrill built and managed the railroads in those parts, and although I doubt my intellectual well-being was his primary motivation, I'm grateful all the same. Dad's parents, my grandparents, were a living tableau of a Norman Rockwell painting. Grandpa ran the medical arts building in Salt Lake City. Starting during the Depression until he retired in the 1970s, he required all his tenants, as a condition of lease, to donate 10% of their services to patients who couldn't afford to pay. This was in addition to the 10% tithing they had to pay the church. 
Grandma ran a sewing circle and saw to it that none of the girls in town went to prom without a new dress, and none of her grandchildren or great-grandchildren went without a homemade quilt. Christmas and Thanksgiving at my grandparents was a never-ending parade of well-wishers dropping off thank-you gifts like a cord of wood, a baked chicken, homemade jam, pickles, a pie, or whatever they could afford. We just waited for the feast to arrive one dish at a time. Once as a teenager, I was hitchhiking from my dad's house in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to see my sister in Logan, Utah, when I was arrested for vagrancy in Paris, Idaho. The young policeman in what was undoubtedly the town's only police car said, Uh, I never had this happen before. I better call the chief and ask him what to do with you. Then he reached for his mic and said, Hey, Dad. And it sounded like the beginning of a bad B-rated horror flick. Anyway, when we arrived at the station, the chief, who looked so much like his son it was scary, started taking down my information, but stopped when he saw my name. Any relation to Dr. Ken Merrill? Yeah, sure, that's my grandpa. That's where I was going, I lied. He turned to his son and said, Do you remember me telling you about Aunt Gertie and Uncle Ken? Then he said to me, When I was a boy, we were very poor. But when my sister Dottie had to have her appendix out, well, your grandpa saw to it that everything was taken care of then and there, and we never saw no bill, neither. He did all our dental work for free, too. And when prom came, Aunt Gertie showed up with a brand new dress for Dottie. He then proceeded to tell more stories, different versions of which we had all heard a hundred times before. I left Paris, Idaho with a bag of freshly picked raspberries to give to Aunt Gertie and Uncle Ken, and of course there was no arrest. Having Gertie and Ken as my grandparents was more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It was a privilege, a source of great family pride, and an example I still try to follow when I'm able. Even in the military, when I was getting a cavity filled in Fort Ord, California, the dentist came in with my file in hand and said, So, I see you're from Utah. Any relation to Dr. Ken Merrill? When I said, Yes, yeah, sure, he's my grandpa, his eyes filled with tears and he told me, I interned for your grandfather during the Depression. I saw hundreds of people come into that office asking for help. Some were locals, and some were Okies on their way from the Dust Bowl to California or to work on the Hoover Dam. Some of them needed medical care, some dental work, some of them just needed food or clothing. But no one was ever turned away, not once. When I went home and passed the greetings from my new dentist on to Grandpa, he, as he always had, inspected my new fillings and then said, Good, good. He still does good work. You be sure to tell him that when you see him. When I was nine years old, Grandpa called a family meeting and informed my parents he thought I might be a homosexual, and he instructed the adults in my family to think up ways to best provide me with the extra support I would need so I could have a happy life. I didn't find out about this until my 40s, but I'm not the least bit surprised that my grandparents put love of family before adherence to the intensely homophobic Mormon faith. I only wish now that I had told Grandpa the Mormon bishop had commanded my older brother to beat the queer out of me. Now I know he would have put a stop to it. During the second half of my childhood, after my brother started beating me, my grandparents' house was my little oasis of paradise and the only place I was safe from abuse. When my grandparents retired, they wanted to be near family in Cache Valley and chose Preston, Idaho, 
the town of Napoleon Dynamite fame, just across the Utah-Idaho border. Preston is also the town most populated by the Merrill Johnson marriages. Just about everyone in Preston, and to a lesser extent Logan, is a relation. Most Merrills are easy to spot. We tend to possess firm, solid builds, square jaws, and rather prominent noses, all large features which don't always look good together. When Grandpa and I walk down Main Street in Preston, judging by the angle or prominence of a person's nose, the redness of their hair, or the severity of their bowed legs, Grandpa could usually tell from which of my famous forebears' many red-headed wives the cousin approaching us was descended. Throughout my childhood, I was the only kid I know who absolutely loved visiting my grandparents. A few times a year, including two to four weeks every summer, I took the Greyhound bus up to Preston. In the Utah dialect, there is no north or south. North is up to, south is down to, east and west are over to. Preston was too small to have a bus station, so the bus driver always dropped me off at the A&W Rupert Drive-In. The six-block trek from A&W to my grandparents' house was always a treat. Everyone was on the lookout for me, and as I walked by piece by piece, a well-coordinated dinner was brought out for me, Aunt Gertie, and Uncle Ken. This great-aunt, that second cousin, or grandchild of a kid Grandpa had cared for, would give me a rhubarb pie, a potato casserole, a ham, string bean salad fresh from the garden, and a bucket of whatever freshly picked berries were in season, usually still warm from the sun. My favorite was always the homemade fried chicken. It was the Preston version of a movable feast, and it usually required one or two young cousins in tow to help me carry all the food the community had prepared for us. There was scarcely a family in Utah or southern Idaho my grandparents had not helped at one time or another. And when the tables were turned and Grandma was bedridden, that same lovely community took turns cooking their meals for 17 years. Again, at the time, I just thought this was as it should be, and I took it for granted. Now, though, when I think back on how that charming little town took care of my grandparents, I realize what a privilege it was to have experienced such kindness. As I mentioned earlier, Grandpa and his older brother had each married one of the Johnson sisters from the neighboring farm. Since they were no longer doing the plural marriage thing, that was just one sister each. When World War I broke out, the two brothers promised each other if anything should happen, they would take care of the other's family. After the war's end, while waiting for deployment home, Grandpa's older brother died in the influenza epidemic. True to his word, Grandpa took care of Aunt Minnie and helped raise her daughter, my wonderful Aunt Beth McConkie. When he retired, he moved both households from Salt Lake City to Preston. I adored my Aunt Minnie. She lived on the top floor of an old three-story mansion that had been converted to apartments. One summer afternoon, I was feeling sorry for myself because the boys downstairs wouldn't let me join them in the sandbox playing with Tonka trucks. So, Aunt Minnie went to the junk drawer, found a big magnet and tied it at the end of a long ball of twine, and when the boys weren't looking, we lowered it down to the sandbox and lifted one of their Tonka trucks. When the boys returned, they each blamed each other for stealing the truck. The ensuing fight had to be broken up by the respective mothers, at which point we took another truck, and then another, then replaced one, only to take it again. If they had ever thought to look up, they would have found their tormentors enjoying Aunt Minnie's homemade cookies and milk while laughing hysterically. Cigarettes, coffee, and alcohol are strictly forbidden in the Mormon faith. But to this day, if I smell any of the three of them on a man's breath, I get a little turned on.
Grandma and Grandpa also had a dirty little secret regarding this trio of taboo tastes. Both of them were genetically predisposed to low blood pressure, something we all inherited. As a result, we tend to be a little slow waking up in the morning and generally need a pick-me-up in the afternoon. Though it's a deadly sin, life without coffee is unimaginable for us. It's quite literally genetic. Starting when they were still newlyweds, Grandma and Grandpa always enjoyed a cup of coffee, code word cuppa, every morning and afternoon throughout their 74-year marriage. When they were still quite young, Grandpa was appointed first counselor to his local Mormon bishop. Said bishop and his immediate supervisor, the Mormon stake president, made an unannounced visit one afternoon, right after Grandma had turned on the percolator for the afternoon cuppa. In a panic, Grandma didn't know what to do to hide the smell, so she put the percolator in a cupboard and closed it. A few minutes later, they started smelling smoke, and then heard this huge crash as the percolator burned through the cupboard and exploded on the kitchen counter below. From then on, Grandpa just had one of his doctors from the medical arts building write them a prescription for coffee due to their low blood pressure, of course, and giving them dispensation for their twice-daily sinful kappa. On the outskirts of Preston was a pink building with the words Merrill's Tavern written in brick and mortar over the front door. You didn't have to look at the name on this building to know the proprietress of this wonderful little establishment was a cousin. One look at her and you knew she was a Merrill. I think she may have been my favorite out of literally thousands of our relatives. Though, for some strange reason, my grandparents never introduced us to her. She was a handsome woman with the good solid build of a Mormon pioneer, and a prominent patrician nose that might have been less attractive on a softer woman, but was quite alluring on her. Her hair was fire engine red and piled unapologetically high in a beehive do. Mormons like to joke. The bigger the hair, the closer to God. Though the color was undoubtedly from a bottle by the time we met her, there was also little doubt this was close to her original color. And not that surprisingly, the tavern's owner looked remarkably like my very pretty sister, Zan. Minus the red hair, of course. Preston's most prominent citizen, my Uncle Sure, was the mayor, the Mormon bishop, and the town mortician. There was no hospital in Preston, but there was the famous Preston Night Rodeo, and oh my heck, was it fun. We got to ride to the rodeo in the back of Uncle Sure's hearse, and had rock star seating right over the horse and bull chutes. In return, the rodeo used Uncle Sure's hearse as an ambulance, properly pronounced ambulance. And this was just in case someone got hurt and had to go down to the hospital in Logan. I know, I get it. This was wrong on so many levels. But what can I say? This was my family. Grandma and Grandpa were married for almost 75 years, and both lived well into their 90s. Grandma absolutely adored parades, circuses, and rodeos. So when she was bedridden for the last 17 years of her life, Uncle Sir saw to it the Preston Independence Day Parade was rerouted to go by the house. Every year, Grandpa would turn around his sweetheart's easy chair so it faced the window and she could watch the parade. And as he had done every day for 17 years, he would carry his sweetheart from her bed to her favorite chair in the living room. Can? Grandma would call with an upward lilt in her voice, indicating that something was wrong. 
A young man and his family had parked their Winnebago right in front of the house, and Grandma couldn't see a thing. Grandpa politely went out and asked them to move so his sweetheart could see the parade. Not this year, old man. We stake this place out and we're going to stay put. Grandpa went to the garage, got his shotgun, calmly pointed it at the young man and said, Son, if you don't move this damn thing out of here, I'm going to shoot out your tires. Then I'm going to call my nephew, the mayor, and have him hold the parade until he tows this old heap out of here. The family piled in their Winnebago and left, and everything was back to normal. When Grandma, then Grandpa, died, it was quite remarkable. Beautiful, really. Grandma died while I was studying in Northwestern University. One day I got a phone call from Grandpa telling me Grandma was sick and I needed to come home. Mind you, at this point, thanks to Grandpa, she has survived so many strokes and heart attacks it had become a family joke. When a new doctor warned Grandma to be careful because of her weak heart, she said, Young man, you be careful. I've had a bad ticker since I was a little girl, and every doctor who ever warned me about it is long dead. I had never received a call like this from Grandpa before, so I knew this time was serious. He put Grandma on the phone, and we began to talk. How are you? she asked, as if it was my health that mattered. What are you up to? I'm just studying for my finals, Grandma, but don't worry about it. I'll be on the next flight home. Oh, no, you won't, she declared. You'll finish your finals, and you'll come home then. Grandma, don't be ridiculous. My last final is two weeks away. My professors will understand. I can take my finals later. No, if you come home now, I won't talk to you. You finish your finals, and you can come home then. As always, I did as I was told. Grandma had quite a list of people she wanted to see, and she had individually tailored messages for each person on her list. Zen and Peter, her unmarried partner for over 20 years, were summoned from Texas, where Zen was living at the time. Peter was told, You take care of my granddaughter. Zen was reminded, We are part of a historical Mormon family, and how important it is to always remember who we are. It would be years before I would fully appreciate how cool it is to be ethnic Mormon aristocracy, but honestly, saying that sentence out loud still makes me chuckle. Once everyone had been checked off her list, she patiently waited another week until my finals were finished. When I arrived, we spent the day with me sitting on the floor next to her in her favorite chair while she ever so slightly pinched my neck between her forefinger and thumb. This was an endearing tick of hers we had all come to love. She would rhythmically pinch our neck while she talked to us. Your grandpa understands you better than you think. Better than you understand yourself, she said. And we love you. Very much. Just the way you are. That night, grandma slipped into a coma and died a few days later. After the funeral, Grandpa decided it was time to visit all the family he hadn't been able to see for the 17 years he was taking care of his sweetheart. He purchased a Tour America Pass for Seniors and flew all over the country at the ripe old age of 93, charming all the stewardesses and meeting all his new great-grandkids. Then shortly after that, he was gone too. When Grandpa died, Uncle sure changed the date on Grandpa's death certificate, making it one day later. This allowed time for his oldest son, my Uncle Bob, to fly in from Sacramento in his plane and write us all checks, before Grandpa was legally dead. It's a good old boy trick, so we didn't have to pay no taxes. The first half of my childhood was truly idyllic, and I have nothing but the fondest memories of lovely little Preston, Idaho. How will I ever get my head around this newly acquired knowledge?
this unspeakably shameful betrayal that my privileged white Mormon forebears literally built this charming Norman Rockwell community over the mass grave of the northern band of the Shoshone Nation, whom they eradicated from their homeland to make room for my family. Those so-called Saints of Zion, my Mormon forefathers, literally ordered a mass genocide in the name of my family and in the name of their Mormon god. Then they very effectively erased it from history. How typically Mormon that they somehow just neglected to ever mention it to anyone for a hundred and fifty years. Learning about the Bear River Massacre has made me realize that I had always been kind of arrogant regarding the knowledge that no one in my family had anything to do with the Holocaust or slavery or any of the most vicious human rights violations in our history. Grappling with the fact that my forefathers literally ordered the largest mass genocide of Native Americans in our nation's history tears my soul to pieces. Every year, on January 29th, the Shoshone Nation and other surrounding Native American tribes now commemorate the Bear River Massacre just outside of Preston, Idaho. I hope to attend next year. But what will I say to them? How does one atone for genocide? My name is Stuart Merrill, and I woke up this gay.